Hey team, it's Robin Upsall, politics reporter at the Des Moines Register. And I'm here to introduce you to another episode of Three Tickets, the Register's podcast about the Iowa caucuses. This is another episode from the 2016 cycle narrated by Jason Noble, and it follows three Iowa activists. Their opinions expressed in this episode may not reflect what they believe this cycle, but their stories offer a glimpse at the volunteers and staff who live and work in Iowa and actually make a campaign run. For better or worse, it takes a lot more than just a candidate talking to a crowd to persuade people to caucus for them. As usual, I'll give a few updates at the end of the episode about what people are up to now. To get this episode started, I want to introduce you to someone. Her name is Terry Goodman, and she is a story that can only happen in Iowa. It was one evening in January 1987. So then in about around dinner time, I think it was sometime shortly after New Year's Eve, maybe. Uh, and I received a phone call. I think we were having spaghetti for dinner that night. And um, I answered the phone and a voice on the other end said, this is Joe Biden. I'm running for president. And I remember saying you and how many other people, because it was a big that phone call was the start of something, out. a presidential campaign, a long, slow ascent to the vice presidency but also a friendship. This is Three Tickets, the Des Moines Register's podcast of Iowa caucuses history and culture. I'm Jason Noble. Coming up next on C-SPAN, we take you live to Iowa. Iowa. <laughs> Hello, Iowa. In the state of Iowa. I'm back. I love Iowa a whole lot. In this series, we're meeting the people and hearing the stories behind Iowa's first-in-the-nation caucuses, the pretty amazing but sort of absurd political contests that have inaugurated the presidential nominating process for the last five decades. In this episode, we're meeting the activists, the average Iowans who participate in the presidential caucuses and who build close, meaningful relationships with the men and women running to be leader of the free world. I'm perpetually surprised by the stories I pick up on the campaign trail, the funny or thoughtful encounters between unassuming Midwesterners and political figures who are literally making history. And pretty much anywhere you go in Iowa, you can find someone with one of those stories. Our first stop is Dubuque in northeast Iowa where I interviewed Terry Goodman at the National Mississippi River Museum and Aquarium. Well, come here. I'll just quick lodge you around the circle. Yeah, great. Goodman is an assistant city manager in Dubuque and worked for years in marketing and fundraising here at the museum. It's an impressive place, and it stands as sort of a symbol of Dubuque's resurgence since falling on hard times during the industrial decline and farm crisis of the 1980s. But alongside her professional career, and actually long before it began, Goodman has been an activist. Local campaigns, statewide campaigns, Iowa caucuses campaigns. Terry has worked up and down the ballot on behalf of Democratic candidates. And maybe it's just me, but I, I think you can feel the enthusiasm for her work, even in the cadence of her voice. I'm, I was home with our four children 
for 17 years. And during that time, I actually, to keep my brain and my heart and my passion engaged, I took my children and we ran political campaigns. And so I volunteered to do that for local... And this wasn't some hobby she stumbled onto in adulthood. In her family... Political activism is a birthright. And so actually, we were, I remember my parents in West Des Moines, we lived on 17th Street, but they volunteered for Jack Kennedy's campaign. And I can remember um, John F. Kennedy, President Kennedy, or I'm sorry, he was candidate Kennedy at the time, um, writing down Floor Drive. And my dad put me up on his shoulders, and I, I must have been young if, because it would have been 59, 60. So I would have been in kindergarten or around that age. And I found an old press release for that trip to Iowa. It was August 21, 1960. Kennedy arrived in Des Moines with his running mate, Lyndon Johnson, for a 12-state farm conference hosted by Iowa Governor Herschel Loveless. The conference was held at the Hotel Fort Des Moines, and Kennedy gave a public speech later that day at Veterans Auditorium. And my father, I remember him saying, Terry, look in that car, and of course it was a convertible. And he said, that man is going to be the next president of the United States. And I can remember... Her parents worked on Kennedy's campaign which means that she sort of did, too. And I can remember my parents' youthful enthusiasm working on that campaign, and they would put us in the station wagon with all the seats down in our pajamas, and we'd go out and they'd work at the, uh, at the precinct uh, headquarters or area where they were doing volunteer work and, and whatnot, and we'd all lay in the car and either play games or, you know, tell stories or go to sleep, read books, whatever. But yeah, so I remember that. So it was a birthright. Then when She we went to college in Dubuque and met her husband there. She was in college during Jimmy Carter's campaign in 1976 and volunteered on something called the Peanut Brigade. In 1980, she backed JFK's brother, Ted Kennedy. And in 84, she was for Mondale, that year's caucus's winner and the Democratic nominee. That brings us to 1988 to Delaware Senator Joe Biden's presidential campaign, and, really, the heart of Terry Goodman's story as an Iowa caucuses activist. 88 was shaping up to be a fierce race with a bunch of candidates. Michael Dukakis, Gary Hart, Dick Gephardt, Jesse Jackson, Paul Simon, Bruce Babbitt, the list goes on. And so in early 87, like you heard, Joe Biden calls her up, interrupts dinner. I asked her how this call had come about, if she knew him from a previous campaign. Oh, no. I'd never spoken to him before in my life. I didn't know what he looked like. I had no knowledge. I had no knowledge of where he was hailing from and, you know, what his issues were at that point. It was early. Clearly, Goodman's reputation preceded her, such that a United States senator from Delaware had been advised to call her at home more than a year before the caucuses to solicit her support. Terry, you're kind of a big deal, aren't you? I was a party activist. As I said, I stayed home for those 17 years, you know, from 78 to 95 or somewhere in there, you know, and I I did, I volunteered. I, I taught French and Spanish before and after school to students, and then I, I did some volunteer work as well for the Girl Scouts. But other than that, I, I really dedicated most of my time to political campaigns for Democrats. And Biden invited Terry and her husband to an event. And they went to see him. And as I said, we had visited with uh, other candidates that year already, and um, we were absolutely um, sold on on um, Senator Biden. And we um, 
you know, studied more and we, we really saw that we shared a lot of the same um, values. And those values revolve around probably faith, family, and friends. You know that he's that kind of person. And we, his values resonated with ours. And um, uh, we volunteered right away and I became... So Terry dived into the campaign. She became Biden's debut coordinator, joined his state steering committee, and, well, I, I should probably pause here to say something about Dubuque, which will bring a little bit of context to all this. Dubuque is a Catholic town. It's an old-time, rust-belt, Irish-Catholic, German-Catholic, Union-strong, Democratic town. Their shopping center is the Kennedy Mall on John F. Kennedy Road. Joe Biden could relate to a place like that and to the people who live there. Um, Joe often said that um, uh, his hometown in uh, Pennsylvania, Scranton. yeah, Scranton, was a, just like Dubuque, and in fact, they do share many of the same similarities. They're working class towns. They're, you know, they're they're just they're scrappy with a, a strong Irish and German, um, you know, ethnic presence and Catholic, and um, so he always said he felt at home in Dubuque. Um, Goodman's role on the campaign frequently involved planning events and scheduling the candidate's time when he came through Dubuque. lunch hour, you'd go to a local restaurant and say, you know, Dutch treat, come and meet candidate Joe Biden running for president. So, you know, you have that. And then for dinner, we could do another event, perhaps, or, you know, a coffee late in the day. So that's what I did. And I, I Organizing, remember, plain and simple. You know, um, but each time Biden came through, his Iowa campaign manager... A guy named David Wilhelm had one non-negotiable request. And I I remember, you know, um, that David Wilhelm insisted that this candidate had to exercise over the lunch hour, which, you know, I can be honest with you here. I was complained about that. I said to David, does this man want to be president? Because he could be, um, you know, doing an extra event. I could have more events and more events. And he said, no, 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 he has to exercise. Well, and I guess who had to find him a workout partner? So that that role was um, my husband's. He he played racquetball and basketball every day. Uh, that was always his lunch hour. So I was fortunate to have such an athletic spouse who was also a Democrat who was willing to um, play racquetball with Joe Biden. So um, they shared many good games. And frankly, my husband said Joe is a very good athlete, and so I think Joe would beat him, but um, I know... Goodman later learned those daily workouts were an improvised therapy for debilitating headaches Biden was suffering at the time. Headaches that culminated in a series of life-threatening aneurysms in early 1988. Somewhere along in that spring and summer of 1987, the Goodmans became something more than volunteers on Joe Biden's presidential campaign. They became friends to the Biden children, family. But, um, you know, in, in general, we were, we were in, in the same um, age bracket. We had shared the same interests and passions regarding issues, political issues. Um, and as I said, you know, you just click with some people. Their values um, are shared. And um, I think the fact that, you know, Joe was Catholic, it made a difference. You know, he sort of understood Dubuque. And at the time... Biden's presidential you know, campaign began to fall apart in the late summer and fall of 87. He was sidetracked by the Robert Bork Supreme Court nomination and then faced plagiarism accusations over a speech he gave at the Iowa State Fair in which he described British politician Neil Kinnock's life story as his own. 
That spiraled into news that he'd plagiarized a paper in law school and exaggerated his academic record. He quit the race in September, four and a half months before the caucuses. In our interview, Goodman was as loyal as ever. She called the accusations against Biden flimsy, and she said if he had stayed in the race, he would have cruised in Dubuque. In Iowa, Dubuque and Sioux City were poised to, you know, just really uh, be a clean sweep for Biden. And um, there were other cities in the state that were also on their way. So uh, After the campaign, the Bidens and the Goodmans kept in touch. Letters and phone calls, that sort of thing. A few years later, Terry and her family planned a vacation out east. And she mentioned her plans to Biden, thinking they might drop in on him in Washington. And um, when uh, Senator Biden found out, he said, you know, if the Goodmans are good enough to host the Bidens in Iowa, the Bidens are good enough to host the Goodmans in Delaware, you have to come to Delaware and spend time with us. Mm -hmm. So we did, and we had... um, They spent a day with the Bidens on the Delaware shore at Biden's sister Val's house. Talking, and we just had a, a lovely time and had a barbecue that evening. And yeah, we've had. You know, when Goodman started working for the museum them, yeah. and then for the city, her government relations work sometimes took her to Washington, where she'd catch up with Biden at the Capitol. And back in Iowa, of course, no, I know. the I caucuses know. marched on. And uh, it's not just, you know, Vice President Biden that we got to know. Um, we've had, as I said, we've had Vice President Gore in our home when he was campaigning, and we've had many good good evenings and good days and good events with um, Secretary Kerry. And uh, Goodman told me that she had encouraged she Joe Biden to run in 2004, the year that Kerry won Iowa and went on to be the nominee. No four, but he called us on the 4th of July and said, I told you guys would be the first to know and I'm not going to be running in 2004. And he said, I don't just pay lip service to family values. I live them. And he said, this has to be a family decision. And the family has chosen that this that not to run this year. So he didn't run in 04. He pulled the trigger in instead in 2008 when the Iowa contest became a three-way race between Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton, and John Edwards. Goodman's daughter volunteered on that campaign. And of course, Terry herself couldn't help but get involved, too. Biden finished fifth in the 2008 caucuses, taking 1% of the delegates. A few weeks later, as Obama and Clinton were fighting for the nomination, Goodman met with Biden and counseled him to keep his options open. And he agreed, and, and he said at the time that he had already received phone calls from both candidates asking him to sit tight, that they would both consider him in their first sort of tier of vice presidential candidates, which was no surprise. Obama chose Biden as his running mate a few days before the Democratic National Convention, held in Denver that August. Shortly after that, Goodman's phone rang. And so Bo called us and said, Dad and Mom want you to have the Marriott hotel room, the GW Marriott hotel room they have in Denver for the family because they have now been given an entire hotel for security purposes they have to be in. So mom and dad want you and John to be there to be a part of this moment for our family. Of course, the Goodmans accepted. Because we weren't going to miss that for the world. And we had a wonderful um, visit with um, the Bidens out there. And we were able to go to the family and friends event and see Bo and Hunter and 
mom and you know Ashley everybody it was just um, it was an incredible uh, culminating experience for us having been friends with them for so long and I think he now, served as an logistics of friendship change quite a bit when someone becomes vice president and Goodman didn't have a lot to tell me about how they've stayed in touch but make no mistake they've remained close just this past September Biden invited Goodman to Washington for Pope Francis's historic visit Goodman stood with Biden in the VIP area at the South Portico of the White House as the Pope and President Obama made their remarks. Biden's also been back to Dubuque since becoming VP, uh, although it's not quite like it president. used to be. But there will be no coming to our house, I'm sure, because <laughs> it, you know, it's not it's not good relations with the neighbors because you have to block streets off and you know, you have Secret Service inspecting everyone's yards and dogs, and yeah. and then you close streets for periods of time. And it's not easy for the president and vice president to come visit. We experienced that with Vice President Al Gore when he was at the house when, um, a number of years ago. And you know, I told Terry, deal. these are stories that could only happen in Iowa. If her family had settled across the river, say, in Galena, Illinois... Joe Biden would just be some guy on TV. She knows. No. no, this isn't only in Iowa. It's an only in Iowa experience, absolutely. And that's why I think... She called living in Iowa a privilege. And she told me a story about her niece, who has looked up to Hillary Clinton as a role model all her life. This niece told Goodman that she desperately wanted to meet Clinton, but saw no chance of ever doing so where she lives in Southern California. So Terry told her, uh, we just, just come to Iowa. Budget. And I said, well, why don't you fly here and visit family? And I know that um, Hillary Clinton will be in town soon. I called, and her father very graciously afforded her the flight out. And she came out. She was here in time for the event. And she was able to meet Hillary Clinton and speak with her. Wow. And uh, it was it was very moving for her, you know. But those are the kinds of, I think, that's the privilege I'm talking about that Iowans have. Terry Goodman's story of campaign trail friendship may be exceptional, but it's not unique. Except for the party and the candidate, it's actually got quite a bit in common with Becky Beach's story. I'm at Beach on a rainy day in May at her house in Des Moines. She worked in politics for years. But now she spends most of her time running the Puppy Jake Foundation, a nonprofit that trains service dogs for injured veterans. Yeah, now, now my life has turned to dogs. <laughs> um, On the morning I met her, Jake, the foundation's namesake, was sleeping in the kitchen. A new trainee, a white lab named Milton, snoozed in a kennel on the sun porch. Um, Milton, who I've got here, is six months, and... Um, He's working on his engagement with me and, and staying with me in his very basic obedience, uh, loose leash walking, things like that. Uh, Beach comes from one of the first families of the Iowa Republican Party. And she shares almost 40 years of history with one of the first families of the National Republican Party, the Bushes. Um, and my grandmother was Mary Louise Smith, who, as you know, was chairman of the Republican National Committee. So, Well, I knew that, but maybe you don't. Mary Louise Smith was a Republican National Committee woman from Iowa for two decades and chairwoman of the RNC from 1974 to 1977. 
the only woman to hold that seat. So at a very young age, I got involved in um, sealing envelopes, and, uh, you know, I loved it because they had donuts on Saturday mornings and stuff like that. So I was always active and wanting to do things, and politics was, was uh, very interesting to me. My dad's a doctor. Mary Louise Smith got to know the Bush family through the RNC, where George H.W. preceded her as chairman. Medicine, but I really enjoyed politics, so... Um, that's what I majored in in college, and um, because of her friendship with the Bushes, my first job out of school was to work and travel for Barbara Bush. This was in the late 1970s. At that point, George H.W. Bush had an impressive resume. He had been a congressman, RNC chair, CIA director, ambassador to the UN, and liaison to China. But even Beach wasn't immediately aware of his presidential aspirations. And at the time, um, I first started working for then Ambassador Bush. Uh, he was chairman of a bank and um, obviously retired uh, from um, being an ambassador. Um, what I didn't know is that they were laying the groundwork for a presidential run. Um, she caught on soon enough, though. Um, for one thing, she found herself working alongside a couple of political operatives, guys named Carl Rove and James Baker. Well, with, through my grandmother, um, I started volunteering down in Houston, um, uh, as I said, when he was chairman of a bank, uh, and Carl uh, and Jimmy Baker were forming a political action committee um, as the first step then to ultimately run for president. So I started working... She started in the finance department, processing donations to the PAC. Um, and then after about four or five months, they ramped up and, and uh, started to do a lot of the travel. And Mrs. Bush needed somebody to travel with her, um, handler press and her thank you notes and her schedule and, and, and be with her on the road. And she interviewed four or five different people, and she hired me, and she said, um, again, this goes back, I think, to the, uh, to the wonderful people they are. She said, you've, she said I'm going to hire you. Um, others may have a little bit more experience, but you've been volunteering for five months, and if you're going to work with us for free, I know you'll do a good job if we pay you. Next stop, Iowa. This was the 1979-80 campaign, the first time the caucuses were a major presidential contest for Republicans. The Bushes ran hard in Iowa, while their main rival, Ronald Reagan, mostly stayed away. But yeah, no, we were in Iowa a lot. In fact, um, Mrs. Bush and I went to every county, all 99 counties. And, um, you know, he wasn't well-known, so that was something that that the campaign, um, Jimmy Baker and Carl thought that they needed to do. And um, obviously he needed to go. I don't know if he, I don't think he did all 99, because um, he needed to be elsewhere around the country. Um, but we spent a lot of time here, and um, it was great. Our events include... Campaigning with Barbara Bush meant teas and luncheons, meetings with a couple dozen people in private homes. Well, we'd stay in the, usually the little motels where you pull up to the door, and um, we'd start early, and she'd do her exercises she wrote in her journal. Um, and we'd hop in a car, and Beth Cross, who I mentioned to you, drove us for the entire time we were in Iowa. Rich Bond was the chair here. Yeah. And um, they'd give us our schedule. We'd fly in, and then we'd just hit the road. It'd be uh, tea. The discussion wasn't exactly political. Luncheons. It was luncheons. an introduction. Um, she'd do some presentations that would be about her, um, th their life in China. She had a slideshow. 
that she would do and talk, and um, I would hit the button for her to move, and, and she used to joke that sometimes I'd hit it too. If I thought she was going too slow, I'd kind of move her along. Um, On the road, Beach also played an integral role in one of the Bush's greatest political operations, their thank you notes and Christmas cards. The Bushes sent out thank you notes for everything. And as far as political tactics go, that's pretty genius. It, was, um, it wasn't a rule as you would think of it as a rule. It was just the way we did things. And um, the, one of the jobs that I had and David did as well was to, uh, at the end of every night, com- compile the list with addresses of, of people um, for thank you notes. And every morning they'd be right there ready and I'd stamp them and they'd go in the mail. And they were um, handwritten. Um, as, as the years went by and, and she was vice president's wife, we had a typewriter on the airplane, which was awesome. But uh, so up until then, they were handwritten and they were always prompt. And um, Similar story with the Christmas cards. The Christmas card list was um, probably as important to them as their donor file. Um, and, you know, we worked so hard to be sure that all the names were spelled correctly because we were a reflection of them. They knew how to spell these people. Beach's other big project on the trail was keeping track of Barbara Bush's needlepoint projects. But And actually, I had learned how to needlepoint myself, but, um, you know, in Iowa, driving from county to county to county, we had a lot of time in the car. And so we both needlepoint, and um, it was a lot of fun. Needlepoint and thank you notes in the slides. <laughs> Bush won the Iowa caucuses in 1980 but he lost the nomination. Becky Beach stayed on after he dropped out, following the family to their compound in Kennebunkport, Maine. Not exactly sure what would happen next. I think it was in May, and then the Republican convention was in June. Um, I I went to Maine with them still. Um, You know, no one knew if he was going to be asked to be vice president. Um, but I was in the room when, when what Ronald Reagan called with Mr. Baker, and we knew it was him and everybody. We all went out. It was the family and, and a couple of us, and we all went out in the hallway, and, um, you know, they visited on the phone and came back in. And, you know, I could tell by the look on her face what had happened. But at the time, we were... Ronald Reagan asked George H.W. Bush to be his vice president, an opportunity Bush himself has attributed, at least in part, to his success in Iowa. Um, and so then everything got, then all of a sudden we had Secret Service and we had uh, a lot of attention. Um, Beach stayed on with Barbara Bush for a year after they went yep. to the White House. Yep, sure did. We um, went to uh, Africa, to Ghana, for the 20th anniversary of the Peace Corps. And it was right in the middle of a budget battle. And we were not able to um, fly back. We had to stay in Africa an extra day because of the freeze of the budget. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's kind of weird. But no, we went to, we went all over. We, I went to the inaugural of um, Marcos in the Philippines, and uh, yeah, it was amazing, all over the world. Um, what makes Beach's experience the all the more amazing is the fact that she was working for, and in some cases living with, not just George H.W. Bush, the future vice president and ultimately president of the United States, but also an entire family of future national political figures. I had, and you know, it's funny because um, both George W., Jeb, Marvin Darrow, and Neil, all of them, as I grew up knowing them, they were my boss's kids. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, George, get your feet off the autumn and your mom will kill you. Um, and, you know, we're, that's how I, I grew up with them as, as uh, you know, kind of helping them get tickets to things and um, 
coordinating travel when we were on the road and when they had friends that wanted to come to the White House and, and different things like that. George, w. George H. W. and George W., as much as anybody in public life, were reduced to one-dimensional caricatures. H.W. is sort of milk toast and wimpy. W. is hot-headed and not very smart. Beach was close enough to see them as real people with, with depth and complexity. Well, um, 41 was a um, just delightful, fun, uh, fun-loving jokester. Um, I remember one time I, he, it was during the holidays and I was over helping Mrs. Bush wrap some presents and he was vice president and he was home not feeling well. And he was joking. He said, I'm in here on my deathbed and you won't come help me. And I mean, it just joke, you know, we were, and she's like, George, we're busy. Um, you know, but just, just goofing around and, and things like that. And of course you'd never see that in public. Um, Both of the Bushes gave her nicknames. In a different way. You know, W will give everybody a nickname and, yeah. um, and actually, his father did too. They just weren't in public. Mine, he used to call me, his dad used to call me Wiener. I don't know why. <laughs> and uh, W called me Beckley. 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 Um, Beach was with then Texas Governor George W. Bush in November 1999, when he got a call telling him of the Texas A&M bonfire collapse, a disaster that killed 11 students and an alumnus. Yeah, he heard. He, they, he got the news, and you know I. I could tell it was a serious conversation, um, and he had tears running down his eyes. And, you know, he hung up the phone and told me what happened, and he, you know, I mean, g- the genuine compassion um, uh, was always remarkable. I mean, he, 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 like his mom, he is, he is and he was what he was, and um, which is so, to me, so heartwarming and, and honest. <laughs> After parting with Barbara Bush... Beach went to work for the RNC, then for the U.S. Information Agency, and the Department of Energy in Washington. She didn't get involved in Bush's ultimately successful run for president in 1988, and in the early 90s, she and her husband moved back to Des Moines, thinking her days in politics were behind her. Then H.W. came out to Des Moines for a Chamber of Commerce dinner. This was in early 1999. And so I was thrilled to see him, you know, helped plan the event and went to the airport and rode with him from the airport to, um, to the event. And he shared, he said, you know, I think George W. might run for president. Would you help him? I said, God, yeah, absolutely. So he called Carl on the phone in the car and said, she'll help. And um, the next day, I think uh, Governor Bush called. And she planned campaign events for W. in 1999 ahead of the 2000 caucuses, and traveled with him while he was in the state. You know, I, one thing I will, will never forget is one of the, we were on the plane going somewhere here, and um, one of the uh, staff guys had wanted him to go to an event, and I, I wasn't involved in the conversation, but I was sitting there, and I said, I don't think you should do that, and he turned right to me and he said, why not? And I gave him my reason, and he said to them, I want you to look into this a little bit more with what Becky's just shared, and we ultimately ended up not doing it. Um, Being from Iowa and knowing the landscape, Beach knew something Bush's national advisors didn't. He didn't have to listen to her, but he did. One last story. No discussion of Iowa caucus activists would be complete without an appearance by Joni Scotter. If you've been to a Republican political event near Cedar Rapids, there's a good chance you know her. 
She's the one who does this. And I went woohoo, and I was so happy. Although she usually does it much louder than that. That is her trademark. And I'll be honest, it totally encapsulates Joni Scotter. She must be the most boundlessly enthusiastic person I've ever met, in politics or anywhere else. I met her for breakfast at a village inn in Cedar Rapids. Here's how she ordered breakfast. And so I'm going to have an omelet, a cheese omelet, a huge, beautiful, beautiful cheese omelet. And, um, and that's what I really, really, really love. And more cream. More cream. <laughs> but the Republican Party of Iowa and the candidates she chooses to support get a lot more than an enthusiastic activist with a distinctive cheer. They get a worker. So, um, so I make phone calls. That's putting it mildly. Scotter told me she tries to volunteer every day except Sunday. I asked her what time she usually starts making phone calls. Uh, 9.30. Uh, probably 6.30. Yeah. <laughs> so nine hours a day, six days a week. Yeah, it's pretty phone. neat. Yeah. yeah, and if I get home, I may make calls when I get home, you know. I don't want to be out. Nine hours a day, six days a week, at a minimum. I asked Joni to quantify the calls she makes. Uh, you know what? It's it just it depends on what you're calling about. Yeah. If you're going to have you know lots to talk about, you know, uh, boy, it's going to be you know every 15 minutes you get a call and so you got four and it's yeah. not a real that average, you know. Um, and I tend to talk with people, so you mm -hmm. know. Um, uh, but I have I've I've made a lot a lot of phone calls in my time, and. Um, 40,000 is probably very appropriate for uh -huh. a year, you know, for a year. Wow. 40,000 um, calls a year. That's 110 per day on average. And people, uh, you know, it's amazing. They see my number, you know, and they know it's me. If I'm at the office, you know, I'm still using my phone. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, and they pick up a Joni call. Yeah. They do. Wayne County Republicans yeah. know that number. Know that <laughs> yeah, they do. And so they just pick it up and they think, oh, what is she up to now, you know? <laughs> and if they have I asked her, what does she say on these calls? Well, I would say, good morning. How are you this morning? <laughs> and then, and, or afternoon or evening. And I would say, um, uh, it's Joni. <laughs> it's political time. Here we go again. Who are you interested this time in? So who has she backed? Who has benefited from all these phone calls? Well, it all started with Lamar Alexander in 1996. Yes. Yes. Oh, God, did I love him. Oh, my goodness, did I ever. And he would come. And then George W. Bush in 2000 and 2004. And he called me Sweet Angel. And Mitt Romney in 2008 and 2012. Oh, Romney. <coughs> Be still my heart, Romney. Um, we became great friends. And um, when we had our 50th anniversary, mm -hmm. Romney called to wish us a happy 50th anniversary. Wow. Uh, when my husband fell ill of cancer, he called. He called at the funeral time. He sent flowers. Um, he would call on my birthday, <laughs> so uh, they were just, you know, just wonderful. Mm -hmm. 
Scudder said Romney sought her out even before George W. Bush was reelected in 2004. And um, it was right after um, GW uh, had the convention. Hmm. You know, and uh, I met him at the convention, and he... Oh, wow, so all the way back to 2004. Yeah, and I mean, I saw, you know, I said I would love to work for you, and uh, and he shows up, and he says, I'd love to have you on my team. And I said, you got it. And he said, what do you want, you know, like in a salary? And I said, you've got to be kidding. No, 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 no. I don't take away from campaigns. I don't. I want them to have yard signs. I want them to have TV time. I want them to have whatever they need in their campaign. And I don't want to take anything away from the campaign that makes it run. You know. And he just looked at me. You know. <laughs> in a November 2014 speech at Brigham Young University, Romney called Scotter a hero. At one of my uh, first speeches in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. The applause from the audience seemed to be instigated by someone with a loud, piercing shout. Isn't he wonderful, she would yell. Or, uh, we love you, Mitch, you're the best. I can assure you, I was as pleased as I was startled. And then after my remarks, this delightful middle-aged woman named Joni Scotter made her way up to the stage and threw her arms around me. That was the first time I met Joni, but it was far from the last. Because over the years, I've seen Joni dozens of times. She drives to wherever I may be in eastern Iowa, and at every speech, her enthusiastic squeals of support energize both me and, and the audience. She, she's a hero to me. For Scotter, political activism was a late-in-life avocation. She didn't really get involved until 1996, when she was in her early 50s. Now she's 73 and has faced some health scares. Her husband died a few years ago, and her children live far away. It's the perfect outlet for her effusive personality and her boundless enthusiasm. And it's just so Iowa. Like I say, I love the phone calls. I really love them. And it's, it's, uh, and that nose to nose, um, you go door to door and they're going to tell you, they're going to tell you how they feel. And this is, this is the neatest part of, of uh, the campaigns is that you get feedback and you can tell your candidate, you know, how things are, are moving and grooving. A few notes on what has changed. David Wilhelm, Joe Biden's campaign manager, worked in venture capital after his politics year and is now at Hectate Energy. The late Mary Louise Smith is no longer the only woman to chair the Republican National Committee. Ronna McDaniel became RNC chairwoman in 2017. Before we end, I want to make sure I thank everyone who helped us with this episode of Three Tickets. Thank you first and foremost to Katie Aiken, the producer of this episode. Thank you also to Rachel Stassenberger, politics editor at the Des Moines Register, Paige Windsor, our news director, and Carol Hunter, the paper's executive editor. 